This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 67. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 67 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Welcome again to another, hopefully, what is considered a great show. Today's featured guest, of course, is going to be Mr. Matt Wright, who is a freelance producer, mixer, and engineer who is working mostly out of the uh, Katati-based, Katati, California, that is, Katati-based recording studio known as Prairie Sun, which is a studio that's been around for a very, very long time in the Bay Area. Yeah, so we're going to be talking with Matt. Also, we have part three of our discussion with James Lindenschmidt from Real Traps, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion about the changing of my mix room here. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, got all the Real Real Traps products put in and have been really enjoying uh, the change in the room. And we'll discuss that with James coming up here shortly. So want to talk to you about a couple things. Um, digital hoarding. How about that? Does that sound like a reality television show or what? Some time ago, I mixed a couple songs for a band. Um, and this is for an old, old friend of mine's band. And sent them the songs, got a little bit of feedback, and uh, made some changes and sent back the songs. And then they kind of disappeared. They kind of dropped off the face of the earth in terms of communication. And, you know, I just kind of thought, well, all right, I mixed those songs and I told them, you know, if you want to use them, great, pay me. If you don't and you don't, you know, you don't want to use them, then don't worry about paying me. Kind of um, a little bit of something I picked up from John Cunaberti. And so long story short, I held on to the tracks. I just put them on uh, a drive and back that drive up to a cloud, cloud-based service and just kind of, you know, forgot about it. And then I was going through and I was cleaning stuff up and I thought, you know, I never heard from those guys. I should just toss this stuff. I don't, nothing's ever going to come of it. And lo and behold, right before I was about to do that, what happens? They come back at me and say, Hey, we're going to use those songs of yours. Can you send us a 24 bit mix for Matt of, 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 of this, you know, one particular song for mastering and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> thank God I didn't throw away these songs. Cause if I had it, that it would have been over. They wouldn't have been able to, um, it's, I mean, they could have used the 16 bit version I sent ultimately, but you know, that would have been a mistake to throw that stuff away. So what's the lesson there? Well, maybe keep copies of everything that you do in some capacity, uh, to my wife's chagrin, I have, uh, created a file server in our closet and um you know it doesn't take up too big of a space although it was just kind of a shock for her to walk into the closet one day and see that server but anyways i have that server set up and it's backing up every day to uh crash plan which is the cloud-based service that i like to use so uh it's got a raid attached to it that goes to a cloud-based service so that kind of allows me to get away with a little bit of digital hoarding and here's another part of that too. Now I do mix in studio one these days and, uh, enjoying that, but these mixes were done in pro tools, d done in pro tools 10 and my methodology for mixing 
is never to bounce to disk in Pro Tools. I always internally print the mix. So the mix itself, the last mix I did, is always the first thing you see when you open the file. And it's very fortunate that I did because since I did those mixes, I've changed computers, I've changed methodologies. And so when I went to go open the, uh, although I do own a copy of Pro Tools 12 on my system, I opened those old sessions and of course, you all know where this is going. You know, some of the plugins aren't the same. Things just are different. Fortunately, I was able to just open it up, ignore the plugin warnings that certain things were missing, and find that mix that I did last and just simply export out a 24-bit version. So there is a little bit of, you know, some lessons there, some methodologies that maybe you employ, maybe you don't, I don't know. But yeah, just sharing that story. Thought that that uh, would uh, strike a chord with some of you. So there it is. Well, that's it. Let's um, jump on over to our discussion with uh, James Lindenschmidt from Real Traps, and we will continue on with part three. So James Lindenschmidt here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, part three of our discussion. So Awesome. So I emailed you a new plot okay. that I shot after that's called Reading A, and it's got the date on it. And um, some of my uh, immediate observations, I don't know if you heard my last show, but um, completely not related to acoustics was uh, what uh, I assume was the off-gassing of, of chemicals on the products themselves, because we got them home you know, we got like they shipped here and we unboxed them and tore down the boxes. And I set them in the hallway outside of my control room, um, for a few days while I kind of got stuff ready. You know, I, I had them outside the, uh, the mix room there for a couple of days and my wife walked by and she's like, what's that smell? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. And it, it didn't really occur to me until I put all the traps in the room and she walked in, she goes, wow, these are like totally off gassing. You should keep the window open for a couple of days to like let them air out a bit. Right. And, uh, that, that was, I think my only like, uh, negative observation that I was like, what is that smell? And then once I figured it out, I was like, okay, okay. These, these are like, you know, a few of these are made like factory fresh. Right. And, and some are, uh, not factory fresh, so the newer ones smelled when the older ones didn't. Right, and that's that's uh, you know it, it does happen sometimes. Unfortunately, with the uh, it's it's just the smell of the fiberglass that we get, and uh, um, it you know most of the time it's okay, but every once in a while, if we get a batch of fiberglass that's you know straight out of the factory, you know we'll have to air it out for a couple of days or something like that. And uh, you know that, that that's usually what it takes. I think your wife gave you the best advice. <laughs> just, just let them let them air out for a few days and, and they'll be fine and it's and she was right well it was that but i also painted so it was the oh, combination right. of the two together du i think double whammy absolutely and so when you put all that into one room she was like yeah you're you're gonna suffocate in here if you don't open the window right but other than that uh they seem to have aired out everything's kind of back to normal man they look great the room sounds much better. It's much quieter. Right. I think the only thing that I noticed, and I don't know, once again, I mentioned it in my last show, uh, I said, I, I kind of regretted, you know, saying, can we get away with not putting something overhead? Right. And I, and I think that seeing the plot, um, I'm, I, I think that I made a mistake there mm. because I still have this bump. It's, it's at a little bit different spot. Than it was. It looks like it's about 
So it's probably at 160, 180 hertz. Still enough, still the, that's the biggest bump. Right. Everything else is kind of mellowed a bit. Right. And and this this reading I'm looking at, the one you just sent me, that is the left and the right speakers separately? Is that right? That is. Okay. That is, yeah. And that's, right. to be honest with you, um, after I installed them, I took a, a fresh reading and it was like completely whacked out. And I thought, right. I need to spend some time and calibrate these speakers. Sure. And I need to move them around. So I spent about a day just like moving, measuring, testing, uh, shooting pink noise, looking at um, waterfall charts, FFT uh, readings and trying to get it as close as I could. And then once I reshot, this is what I got. And this is actually the closest and the most symmetrical it's ever been. Right. Yeah. That was definitely one of the goals was to restore some symmetry relative to what you had going on there before. Um, and and what I'm doing right now, I'm just pulling up the original graph that you sent me to take a look at them here. And, um, yeah, it definitely looks much flatter than it did previously. The peak that you're talking about at 160 or 180, to my eye, looks narrower than it was. It was. It's not quite as broad of a boost as it used to be. And yeah, uh, yeah just overall, it it does look a lot smoother. And you know, particularly in the lower end too, there's qu- less peaks and valleys. And like you said, the left and the right are much more consistent than they were. So yeah, that's great. That's uh, that that's you know, that's about what we would expect as far as uh, um, you know, starting to flatten things out for sure. It's possible that the the lack of traps above you on that angled ceiling you know certainly if you would if if you put something up there it would flatten out even more no question there's a lot of ways to attack that sort of that remaining 160 a lot of times I, i find that peaks like that are related to the speaker placement in the room as far as where mm-hmm. the speakers are um so did did you did you mess with the speaker locations at all when you were yeah i um i set up a, a measurement mic and ran some pink noise and just kind of would move stuff uh move the speakers around left to right front to back and kind of found like where it looked uh, the most smooth from top to bottom okay right and uh the spot that they're at now is kind of that it seems to i'm not saying it's the absolute ideal spot right, right. but it is looking really good right uh compared to the other spots okay. the other thing that i think i noticed that i never noticed before and i know i should have noticed this from the beginning not only does the room slope from um you know, shorter in front, taller in back, but it also slopes slightly left to right so that it's a little bit shorter on the left than it is on the right. It's not as extreme right. as the front to back, but but it's there. And so that really, no matter where you stand, unless you're putting something on, actually, no, not even that. It's, it's there. I don't think that there's any one spot in the room where, or two, you could pick two spots in the room and think that they're symmetrical from height. Right. But there's always going to be a slight uh, upshift right. in the height. Yeah. Yeah. That's an unusual room. It's, it's like, it's almost like it's, it's got its own thing going on with all three dimensions and sloping and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So in, you know, in, in a way that's, that's good because that's going to, you know, we talked about this some, I think, but that's going to help you with things like flutter echo. You're, you probably don't have much of a flutter echo problem, you know, because of that, if it's enough of an, of an angle, you know, of a difference, if, you know, far from parallel that, uh, that it would solve that, but yeah, there's not really much of a flutter echo in this room. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to me some about some of the listening tests that you've done. What are some of your observations 
as a listener? I did a few things. I I, I definitely, um, from a totally geeky perspective, I played Pink Noise, right. walked around the room, and noticed that the bass buildup in the spots that we measured was not there. Like right. it 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 felt like everything just felt more smooth right. in the room. Right. For sure. Um, I listened to a lot of music. Played. Uh, Played some music uh, with and without the Sonarworks um, EQ correction in the system. Okay. And I don't know, man. I just, I felt like uh, there was, with and without it, it was it was still an improvement. Sure. You know? or, or I should say, I st- to, to correct what I said, without it, it even sounded like an improvement. With it, after I made the final measurements, right. that's when it, it just, it's even better than it was before. Right. Because the... I guess, you know, if you're not familiar with it, once again, it's you go through the user um, uh, interface that Sonarworks provides, you move the mic to where they specify and all these little blips and blops come shooting out your speakers. Right. And then it gives you a plot of the room. And I did that probably, I don't know, over the course of a day, maybe eight to 10 times Mm -hmm. because I kept moving stuff and going, no, that's not good enough. Right, right. It's got to be better. And by the time it was all done and I listened, you know, the combination of the acoustic, uh, you know, the, the, the combination of the real traps and the Sonarworks software, it sounded great. Right. Sounded really great. Such detail, really great imaging. Um, you know, played some music that I'd been familiar with for a long time. Definitely right. started to notice subtleties that, you know, you don't normally hear. And uh, I also experimented with putting the the traps that were on stands right next to the speakers so that, like, literally to the immediate left and right of, of the the bigger speakers that I have, the Klein and Hummels. And uh, experimented with that and putting them against the wall. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that when I'm just doing work, I'm going to pull them away. But then I put it, I have a spot that I have marked now for right. them to be at when I'm mixing or mastering. Cool. But um, yeah, it's just the room sounds really good. I and I think that you know the Sonarworks thing is is uh, aids in all of that. Right. Um, so I think that you know I, I think if I wasn't dependent on the Sonarworks thing, I'd be like. I don't know when I see when I see that bump, it makes me want to correct it just because I've been on this correction mode. Right? Is it the roof? I don't know. Right? I can't. I can't tell. Yeah, yeah. It's it's tough to say. It, yeah, it, when it's 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 tricky to hunt down frequencies like that sometimes because in most cases, what we see in the final response curve is quite a few. You know, you know, at at, at bare minimum two, but usually three or many many more different things that are working together to create that curve the mondo traps those things actually have a lot of weight to them right they're solid for sure and uh i I did experiment with keeping them on the ground but i really wanted the look of having them on the wall and then totally i took the um uh there was you know how they're the mondo traps are packed in this giant cardboard box and there's these foam end caps that are on there right to protect them i took part of that foam and made these rectangles there. I mean, they're already rectangles. I pulled the side side of them off and right. I made these rectangles so that you have like about however thick that is, you know, an inch and a half, two inches yep. thick. And I put them behind the traps. Cool. So like uh, little spacers as spacers just to push them out right. from the wall. Awesome. So yeah, it's nice. There's there's a gap behind every one. Yeah, some people when when they have a gap like that, one cool effect you you might want to play with is you can sneak lights, little like LED lights or something behind the traps. For like I was, kind of a, I, 
You know, I yeah. was thinking about that today. I see the smile on your face. So that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that can look pretty cool in the right, in the right situation. So that's, that's, that's one thing some people have done for sure. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I gotta say, I'm really impressed with how they're built. Excellent. They look, they look really well done and look really solid. And I had somebody comment, um, on the website, they were like, you know, I think the real traps, they're great, but you know, you can, you could do so much better, uh, or you could spend so much less with, uh, this other company who I will not name. Right. And my feeling is this, and I think, um, it was highlighted actually when I was watching your inner, your interview with Tony Maserati, uh, Tony was talking about how he said, you know, if he changes studios, he can pick them up and take them to his new place. Right. When you have less expensive product, which that's fine. Right. I get that. But when you have less expensive product, the more you move it, the more wear and tear goes into it. And sure. the fact that you guys have this metal frame on here right. really helps. It's like a little case for it. It really protects right. it. And I just see that I'm going to have these for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's definitely one of the one of the things about it. I mean, certainly... And you know, Ethan, um, the, one of the founders of Real Traps, and myself, we're both very active on forums, helping people, you know, come up with strategies when they want to build their traps. So we're, we're supportive of that, and certainly, we would rather see people build their own traps than, um, you know, than not have treatment, you know, and, and go with that kind of thing. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. It's really hard to replicate the build quality that goes into our traps in a home DIY shop. And I'm, you know, I'm a DIY guy and I can't do that. I can't do the kind of metal work that we do with that kind of precision and, uh, and, you know, the upholstery and all that kind of thing. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we build our traps with the best available materials, you know, and, you know, we've looked at other materials. We've looked at things like rock wool, using that as the insulator, as the, as the absorbent material. And it works. It performs pretty well, pretty similarly to what we use, but, you know, over time it's not going to hold up as well. And, uh, you know, so, so that, that's part of the equation for us, for sure, is how the traps are going to age, um, both in appearance and effectiveness, um, maintenance on them as well. You know, how do you clean them? You know, just with ours, you know, just a vacuum cleaner attachment is 99% of the time what you need. You know, if something gets spilled on it, then you might have to scrub it off a little bit. But, you know, they're, they're, you know, most of the people that, that buy our stuff, they're going to use them their whole career from one room to the next as they grow. And, and, uh, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, the other thing that I would comment on that I think is difficult to replicate with our stuff is, um, the, the membrane on the front of the traps, um, that's, it's underneath the cloth, but that's what sort of sculpts the absorption curve in our traps. And, Hmm. you know, and and we've looked at a lot of different things and put a lot of, you know, development in to get that membrane exactly right. So it's, it's, it does exactly what we want it to do. And that's tough to replicate, um, and, you know, in, in a DIY project. You know, absorbing high frequencies isn't that hard. You know, I mean, a curtain will absorb highs, foam, you know, fiberglass. There's all kinds of ways you can absorb highs. But getting the the performance at the low end, that's where it gets tricky. And our base traps are not just simple slabs of rock wool or fiberglass. There's that membrane's a big, big, big part of how they perform. And that's that's tough to that's tough to replicate as well. Rock rock wool falls apart. Right, exactly. Over time. It does. And and I guess you could look at it like this. I know that some people are going to say, well, that, you know, real traps are, that's great, but they are pricey. But if you're yeah. thinking about, if you want to buy something once, right, this would be the way to go. No like question. Something that you buy it and you yeah. write it off and it, it stays with you. And if you sell it, right, it carries its value. Right. Absolutely. But it, and that's but true. If you get, 
crappy stuff, it's not going to hold up and it's not going to hold its value. Right. And that that's true with all audio gear, really. You know, I mean, yeah, can you, you know, if you have a soldering iron and a schematic, you know, can you get some parts and, you know, build your own mic preamp for three, four hundred bucks? That sounds, you know, kind of like maybe a much more expensive one that you buy off the shelf. Yeah, you could. Sure. You know, if you're a soldering guy, I mean, I'm, I'm a DIY guy. I get into that sort of thing, you know, but sometimes I'd rather just get one that works and I don't have to worry about it. And I know it's going to work and it's reliable and I'm still going to have that mic preamp in 10 years and it's going to work just like it did when I got it. You know, that sort mm-hmm. of, that sort of thing. I, I, I think that's true for all audio gear and, you know, in, in a sense. The DIY traps uh, or absorbers, I should say that I had in here before, I just gave them away. Right. And if I ever get out of audio, which is doubtful, right? Um, uh, I can't see like I just can't see parting with these. But if I ever do, right, I'm not going to give them away. I'm going to sell them. Sure, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But because it's it's a nice product, and and it's even my seven year old came in. He walked in and sat down, and I said, "Do you see? I changed the room around a bit." And he kind of swung around in the chair, and he goes, "Looks really good, Dad." <laughs> yep. And I was like, "Yep." very yeah. very happy about that yeah absolutely that's great so um yeah that's that's kind of you know the nuts and bolts of it i'm very very happy and i'm it's been a real um you know enlightening experience to really kind of dig in because with our own spaces i think we can get lazy yeah yeah no doubt and complacent and i feel that this kind of forced me to get up off my ass and really put some time into the room totally and I'm really happy with the results. Well, that's an investment in time, you know, because now you have this room now that you have as opposed to the old room. And what ha- have you done much mixing yet with it in the new room? How's that been for you? Uh, I haven't. I've only done a little bit of mastering. And okay. um, I would say that I d- was doing it and I felt uber confident mm-hmm. in what, what, what was happening. Now, I must confess, when I first got that Sonarworks software, that lifted my confidence level. Right. But now I have another level of it sure. because I feel like the the Sonarworks isn't doing as much correction right. as it once was. Right. Yeah. So. Excellent. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, I I think the confidence piece is such an important piece of this as well. You know, because I, I I think you do get more confident and. You know, I mean, you know, you're you're an experienced guy. You've been doing this a while, so your your confidence, I think, is already good. But you know, just really, what I where I think it'll manifest for you is being able to make you know more being able to make mixed decisions or mastering decisions more quickly. You know, just because you can zero in on problems more easily because you're hearing more accurately, and and I I think also it's going to speed your workflow up a little bit as well. I definitely <clears> think <throat> that. Um, you know, it's all it's all like little little uh links in the chain of of everything and you know having these show up and and realizing okay it's time to really take it up a notch um it forces you to get serious about stuff it caused me to realize that you know what i'm gonna have to get this other big cpu in the room that i have with a a little raid set up right out of here yeah yeah i put it in my closet nice in my bedroom nice and i could still access it but now the room i've got two laptops in here mm-hmm. and the, with solid state drives sweet and the room is just so quiet yeah 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 it's uh someone i talked to a while ago referred to that as sort of the the um the 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 digital black like that's equivalent to like a a, a visual monitor being able to give you like that really deep black and you've got 
as a result, sort of almost like a more dynamic range of color available to you. So when you've got a room that's not only quiet, but also treated, it gets you closer to that in a way. It's kind of, I thought that was a good analogy. It's also made me examine the other parts of the room a little more closely. Like um, I've thought about maybe getting a, a more uh, complete um, or, or thicker rug, like mm-hmm. maybe a, a bigger rug sure. to cover the floor. And unfortunately in this room, it's tile. Right. So I have a rug now, but it's, it's a tightly woven. Uh, so I don't really think it's doing much except letting my chair roll around a little more easily. Right. But I think uh, that, that might help yeah. as well. Yeah. With, with rugs, I mean, you know, like we, we talked about a few times now, the, the, you know, things like rugs and carpets, they'll absorb some high frequencies. So they might change the sound of the room a little bit. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be a huge change, especially now that you've got that much treatment in there. You know, it, it, it'll probably be perceptible, but it'll be a subtle tonality thing more than anything, I think. And, you know, and then from there, it's, that's really what you have to look at is, okay, do I have the right kind of surface? Do my feet feel good on it when I'm working or do, you know, or can I, can I roll my chair around easily enough? And, you know, those are concerns that are just as much part of the equation as the sound. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been an adventure for sure. And, uh, definitely one that, uh, I would encourage others to, to go down if they have a questionable room. Awesome. So can somebody listening to this, can they reach you and can they kind of sure. receive, uh, you know, a similar kind of consultation? Does that, yeah. uh, is there a cost involved with that? Yeah. Well, um, most of the time people are looking to treat their space with our products. And if that's the case, then there's no additional charge for consultation. If you're going to use our stuff to, to treat it, our, our consultations included with that. And in, in fact, that's, that's one of the reasons why we don't have the ability to order our products online. Um, you know, we, we want you to call us because, you know, as you saw the boxes that these come in are big boxes and they're expensive to ship. So we want to make sure that you're getting the right thing for your needs. And, you know, and some people do, they call up and they know exactly what they want. And I just take the order in that case. And that's fine. But, um, if you want to, you know, a lot of people aren't really sure and, or they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not a hundred percent sure they're getting the right thing for their situation. And that's where I'm happy to take a look and, you know, give everything up up to and including sort of what we did for you, you know, a detailed look at your room, you know, quite a few phone conversations to sort of come up with a good strategy to, you know, and, and the end result is always, the goal is always to sort of maximize the results that we get within the budget that's available to treat the room. This whole series that we've done has been kind of a glimpse into that process for people because this is pretty much what I do for people all day long. And, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I help people make their rooms sound good. That's what we do. I'm ready. I'm ready when you are. <laughs> Let me ask you, I'm, I'm tempted as an experiment to take, um, the far, uh, corner, uh, tr- mini trap that oh. is kind of by my bookshelf and one that's over the door out and Stick test them, up them there. Yeah, totally. over, over, over the mixing area. I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like they may be better served there yeah. than they would be in those corners. Give it a try and see, see, you know, that's, that's the only way to answer it for sure is to try it and see and, and, you know, remeasure the curve. And, you know, if you can do a, a, a separate before and after, in other words, um, put your mic up, take a curve with the way things are now, leave the mic up and don't move it and move the traps and then take another curve. Because uh, that's that's you know that's the thing with uh, whenever you take a reading, the mic's got to be in the exact same spot, um, or or you can't give a direct hundred percent comparison to the results because any difference that you see could be caused by the mic moving as well. 
Um, and yeah, you know, so so that's important. And the other thing to keep in mind is that um, in in the sonar works, I don't see a setting on there on the graph that you gave me for um, for smoothing. Um, but th- those, I'm almost I'm positive those have been smoothed to you know to a significant degree. Um, certainly at the higher frequencies, um, they've been smoothed out because you know the response will be much 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 more jagged than it shows there. Yeah, that's another thing that's sort of. You know, and I, I understand why they smooth it because we want to get a sort of a general view of what the what the room's doing. Um, but at the same time, the the way that the smoothing works is they're averaging information within certain bandwidths. Okay, so you know it, it's harder to see the specific changes that might be happening as a result of that. So if if there's a way in the sonar works, and I'm not at all familiar with sonar works, but if there's a way in there where you can adjust. If there is any smoothing or how much smoothing there is, I would either turn it off completely if you can, or if you can't do that, try to minimize it and uh, and and see what those curves look like because that'll give you even more information. Yeah, because when I actually uh, was blasting the pink noise with the mic, I was looking at it back in Studio One and Persona's Studio One and looking at yeah. their tools. Right. And the the graph was you know like you know crazy jagged. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you could and you could smooth that out if you wanted to. Right. Um, in that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It was very interesting. Hey, thank you again. Yeah. Yeah. This was uh this was um this was great. Yeah. It's been very informative. I think it's been great for the show. I think people are really enjoying it. Awesome, man. Well, cool, man. You have a good evening, and yeah. uh, I'll I'll be in touch if uh, I got any questions. Well, cool, man. All right, James. All right, thanks so much. Take care. Talk soon. All right, James Lindenschmidt here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Very, very, very informative. Glad that we could uh, have James on, and I hope you enjoyed that. That, uh, of course, concludes our conversations with him. If you are just tuning in and this is the first time you've heard this, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to parts one and two, and you'll get the whole perspective. And then... Uh, we'll take all of the uh, charts and plots and uh, we will put the whole thing together in some kind of package and it's probably going to end up on the YouTube channel because there's video involved and there's pictures and you can kind of uh, follow along and I think it might be easier. So uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, Let's move on to our interview here with Mr. Matt Wright here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I spent some time on your website and was checking checking things out, listening to stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, man, your, your shit sounds good. Oh, thank you. Sounds really good. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Makes, makes me want to go back and remix a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know Which that is, feeling. Yeah. You know, when you hear somebody else's stuff and you're like, oh, man. I got to up my game. This is oh, yeah. this is really good. Well, we never judge anybody else like we judge ourselves. Oh, I know. Um it's a there's a serious grass is greener thing for me where I everything I always think everybody else's stuff sounds better than mine. Your stuff sounds pretty meaty. Well, pretty thank good. you. I appreciate yeah. that. No, I'm um, sure it's better than I think it is, but uh it's it's a different set of ears when I'm listening to my own stuff than it is listening to anybody else's stuff. And listening to someone else's stuff, all you hear is what's new and different and exciting about it. And listening all my to my own stuff, all I hear is what I wish I'd done differently, you know. Which I guess is part of the art side of it. Yeah. But man, I, I, I turned on uh I think it was um it's Jacob Fur Branches. Oh yeah. That's a real good one. Yeah, I'm really proud of that project. You should be. Yeah. Uh, where was that done at? 
Uh, that was done at Prairie Sun uh, okay. in Katati. I, Prairie Sun's been my home base for the last 10 years. Jacob's from uh, Texas. He lived out in the Bay Area uh, a number of years ago. I don't know how he knew of the studio, maybe from then, but uh, he came out to do that project, brought a couple guys with him. It was a lot of fun. They did a lot of stuff live. It was a trio, and what they do is they do one pass live with drums, vocal, acoustic guitar, and uh, lead guitar. And then on half the tunes, they do a second pass, and they'd all switch instruments. So the drummer would play bass, and guitar player would play keyboards, and the other guy would play mandolin or some piano or but it was cool two passes and the song was done wow yeah, yeah it's got a got a great feel to it did you uh uh mix it on a neve or a ssl there that was mixing on the ssl there it sounds really good so well, thank you very impressed yeah i was really uh, proud of that one that was just one of those ones where everything went right <laughs> how did you uh how did you end up uh making uh prairie sun your home uh i did my internship there in 2005 and they were never able to get rid of me interesting uh, i've been a staff guy there since i finished my internship and i've been the chief guy there for seven or eight of those years depending on when you think i officially became that guy but uh yeah uh i've got one of those rare staff engineer positions wow so can you talk about um the transition from internship to staff guy and the change in the financial arrangement, not necessarily how much money, but money being paid and or salary. Well, um, there's no salary. It's staff guy, uh, it just means I'm a freelancer who gets work thrown him in all the time, um, ah. primarily from one source. So I'm still freelance. I'm still independent, uh, still do work in my own studio, other studios, but I'd say 90% of the time I'm at Prairie Sun uh, and they keep me busy. The transition was really just right, the timing. When I did my internship there, they had a few staff guys. I think that they're, mm, I don't want to say attitude issues, but just issues with feeling like there were projects that were they were too good for. <laughs> so oh. I made myself useful by not being too good for any project. So I transitioned into first engineering very quickly uh, after finishing my internship. Then once I had the chops to actually be an engineer, uh, it took over more and more of the work. Hmm. That's interesting. So th those guys that had that attitude are no longer there? No, they've all moved on to different things. Uh-huh. And none of them were there really full time. Um, they were all there kind of part time, with the exception of maybe the guy who was the chief guy at the time. And, you know, I... I think, you know, people get burned out very quickly <laughs> at this job. And I think also not everybody who does it gets, uh, has the right personality type for it. However talented they may be, uh, you know, however much they may love the work. It's a service industry job. So if you're not comfortable with, you know, making yourself of service to the client and making sure that they feel happy about the money they spent with you every time, I think it can wear you down pretty quick. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Prairie Sun has been around for a very long time. 36 years? Yeah. Well, 36 years in the current location. Uh, Mukas started it two years before that. So he's been going at it for a while. Same guy, same owner all these years. All these years, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting because in the Bay Area, I think there's... I can't think of any other studio that's had one owner... Like, for example, if you look at Different Fur, Different Fur has had numerous owners yeah. over the years. Um, Fantasy, of course, 
has had numerous, uh, you know, a couple different owners. The plant, which is no longer around. Right. And the only other person I could think of would be John Vanderslice. He's got probably the most longevity. Um, but yeah, definitely Muka has the most long term. Um, so yeah, Muka, right. his situation is rare. Definitely, definitely. And I think he's got a. He's got a strong passion, I think, for being in the business. I think he wouldn't know what else to do with himself. Does he spend a lot of time there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's highly involved. He's there usually five days a week, kind of in a managing, overseeing capacity, working the business side of things. He still likes to get his hands dirty producing or engineering on occasion. Less so than when I started there, but Mm. uh, still does it. How many rooms are there? Uh, Three rooms. There's two tracking rooms, and those are the Neve rooms. One of those we do some mixing in, which is Studio B. That's the automated Neve. And then uh, there's the SSL room, which uh, doesn't have a tracking room attached to it, but a nice, big, comfortable control room and way too much stuff. Muka is a, <laughs> Muka is a gear collector, and uh, he's got just about everything up there. Give me an average, like, days per month you think you're working. Oh, I mean, you know average i'm i'm my aim is usually for like 18 to 20 days a month um Mm. now some months that's more like 10 days and some months that's more like 26 so um it it it's all over the place i don't quite reach the balance i'd like to but uh overall uh over the course of the year it averages out to you know full-time job that's good. And uh, you have a new, well, not new, but you have an 18-month-old son. Yeah, yeah. He's so n- Newish, though he feel, sometimes it feels like he's always been there. Yeah, it's str- strange how that is. Yeah. Um, tell me about how life was before at the studio, before your son came into this world, and how it is now. Ooh, yeah. Uh, it's a huge difference. Um, I mean, the work itself is not all that much different, but the way I think about it uh, is entirely different. Well, how do you think about it? Uh, well, I think before I was pretty comfortable just living for my job. Um, and I think that working this type of gig, uh, uh, rewards that type of approach. The more you live for this, the more you throw yourself at it full bore, the better you're going to do. And even, you know, being with my wife, uh, you know, I met uh, my wife about seven years ago, uh, living together before we had our son, we were both people who valued our alone time. So if I was working 10 days in a row, eh, it might be, you know, like she, my wife would miss me, but it would be like, okay, now I'm done with that 10 day stretch. All right. We least got some time together. All right. Now I'm going into another thing. And it was kind of okay. And now it's just totally different. Just the way I feel about looking for balance and how much time I spend on work outside of the time where I'm actually on the clock engineering and the degree to which I think I mentioned this when we talked yesterday that I read the magazines or I, you know, watch the videos or I uh, spend my free time obsessing about engineering is all out the window. Um, I think the time now where I'm not working, uh, I'm more interested in time with my family. Interesting. Yeah. It changes your perspective for sure on the process. It cha- to me, it changed everything. So I look at it completely different than how I used to, and I'm sure you do as well. Now, of course, you're on the early stages of it with such a young young person in your life. 
once that kid starts to get older, I will tell you from my own experience that the more independent they become, even at a young age, like, you know, I'm taught for me, it's seven and 10 years old for my two boys. Mm -hmm. Um, there starts to be more flexibility and you, I think you're going to swing back around where you won't live for it again. Like you did when you were without child, but I think you'll come back around and the interest level will kind of shift yeah. in a new direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not to say that I I don't still have a strong interest in the job. I mean, I love this work. I mean, I love when it comes to the actual work, when it comes to like dealing with music every day in a creative basis and uh that I love, but uh I definitely have felt a shift in terms of the amount of not just my energy and my time, but also my identity. I want to wrap up in the idea of being a recording engineer. It, you know, I think the when I talk about living for my work, it's like there was a certain degree which that's who I was. I was a recording engineer first and everything else second. And now I feel like I'm a dad first and everything else second. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling. Um, now, as far as uh, accommodating the work and the family, do you have a home mixing setup? Um, I do sort of, um, it, my, uh, my boy took over the room that was my home studio. <laughs> uh. So, uh, at the moment it's all in storage. Uh, luckily I got a, uh, another local studio where the guy's been renting me his control room for cheap when I do have a at home mixing gig. Um, uh, that's good. I mean, at, you know, for the last few years, uh, in, especially Prairie Sun has just been dominating my calendar. So I might have one or two records a year that I mix uh, in my studio. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm kept pretty busy over there. So obviously you and your wife have, have an arrangement or family, I assume, that take kicks in when you need to go and disappear at Prairie Sun. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've been figuring it out piece by piece. It hasn't been the same answer uh, the whole time, you know, and last year, our first year with our son was just kind of interesting because I ended up having a lot of time at home. I had a, I was sick for like six weeks at the beginning of the year. And then I had a few slow months. So I had a lot of time with my boy, which was awesome. Uh, I think we're now, I started off the year this year with some really busy months. And I think we're now figuring out how we're going to, how we're going to navigate that. Mm -hmm. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about the uh, early days uh, leading up to Prairie Sun. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, where is Prairie Sun located for those who are uh, in the Bay Area? Yeah, Prairie Sun is in Katati, which is right on the 101, about an hour north of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, it's on a 12-acre former chicken ranch. And so the studios are converted farm buildings. One used to be the granary. One was the big uh, barn slash hatchery. Um, the mix room was uh, a garage or some other type of uh, building and a very unassuming place to drive up to. And uh, I think it blows people away when they first walk in the door, usually. <laughs> <laughs> they don't expect to see all that in there. Okay. Yeah. So... Uh you did your internship there in 2005? 2005, yeah. What what was leading up to that? Like what what were you doing prior to 2005? I've been, you know, involved in music uh my whole life, you know, my uh I grew up in a musical family, which is, you know, an incredible blessing. When I was in college in particular, a friend and I got really into home recording, or rather I got really into home recording the songs he was writing. <laughs> 
Though at the time, I we we thought we were doing a two man band thing, and we were trying to collaborate and write songs together. But at a certain point, I realized that he wrote all the songs, and I just did everything else. But I really enjoyed that everything else. So that was when I was in college. I was uh, I went to Cal and graduated in two thousand four. Just kind of unrelated major. After I finished, uh, you know, it was that thing of like, okay, I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to high school, graduated high school, went to college, graduated college. Now what am I supposed to do? I don't know. And it's like, okay, I gotta go get a job. Well, what what kind of job am I gonna get? I don't, I don't feel like I've been leading towards any one direction. Uh, my dad recognized my passion and kept asking, well, what about this recording thing? You know, you really enjoy this recording thing. You know, people do that. Why, why couldn't you do that? And I think I had a much more withering and uh, pessimistic view of what the opportunities were in the recording industry. And mm-hmm. I was like, uh, you know, yes, but uh, th- that's just a terrible idea, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> How adult of you. <laughs> no, uh, my, my feeling was like, uh, you know, you, you can't, everybody wants that jo- those jobs and uh, nobody's making any money and, you know, it's all falling apart. And I, I don't know if I, that's really what I should do. Um, and I think he could tell that I wasn't really motivated for anything else at that moment. And, uh, his response to me was, well, are some people doing it and making money? I'm like, well, sure. Of course. There's always some people. And he's like, okay, so why not you? And I didn't really have a good response to that. So it's really my dad's fault. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Blame your parents. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's it's my dad's fault that I've been doing something I love for the last 10 years. Yeah. So I, uh... I uh, looked for an internship and uh, ended up at Prairie Sun by uh, by chance, and it's a weird chance because uh, later discovered all the f- familial and friend connections to Muka and Prairie Sun. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. My uh, my uncles had a band. Uh, my dad had a band as well, but my uncles had a band together. And my dad's brothers they had actually recorded with Muka at the original Prairie Sun. Um, back in 78 or 79, they had all these mutual music acquaintances, which I discovered after I started there. What about moving to Katati? Like was, cause you went, to, you went to Cal. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you were living in Berkeley, right? Uh, I grew up in Walnut Creek. Um, so after I finished Cal, I, I moved back to my parents' house for a year and worked, uh, just kind of a retail job and save money while I was figuring out what I was going to do, which, you know, got me through that first year. Um, I'm very uh, lucky and privileged in that I got out of school without student debt. I don't think I would still be here if I had student debt I was trying to play off. But how, how is that culturally going from there to Katati? Well, you know, when I started the internship, I didn't really notice any culture because I was at work from 9 a.m. till 3 or 4 in the morning the first. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first, I didn't have a day off the first six weeks of my internship. And I think I averaged about four hours of sleep a night. So preparing me for fatherhood. Exactly. <laughs> well, how would you explain uh, what what's Katati like? Um, you know, I lived in Katati for the first few years I was up here. It's a it's a quiet town, um, you know, and it's also kind of the empty uh, commuter center of Sonoma County. So there's more of a vibe to other parts of Sonoma County than there are Katati. A lot of Katati is people who are commuting elsewhere to work. So, but it's a small downtown. It's a it's a cool spot. Um, from what I understand, it was a pretty hip 
place in the 70s and 80s, which is why uh, Muka settled there. And uh, they had a venue there that drew up a lot of big acts from the Bay Area. And, but, uh, yeah, the rest of Sonoma County, I mean, Sonoma County is gorgeous. I mean, and every time I consider, like, oh, where, where are we going to end up in the future? It's hard to think about being anywhere else. Sonoma County physically is unbelievably beautiful. And where do you live now? I'm in Santa Rosa. Okay. Yeah. Just a few, 15 minutes north. Yeah. How long of a uh, commute is that for you then? Man, about 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, not bad. <laughs> uh, I roll out of bed. I'm halfway there. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you graduated from Cal. Your mm-hmm. dad kind of, you know, prompted you to do this. You looked for an internship, discovered Prairie Sun. Mm-hmm. So d- what did you do? Did you just call people? Um, you know, I went to the usual suspects. I called uh, Fantasy, and they said they weren't doing interns at that time. I don't know whether they were or not. I went to the plant. I went to Hyde Street. Um, uh, they were both uh, very suspicious of the fact I hadn't been to audio school. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, what did you st- What did you study in, in, in college? Uh, I was a film studies major, which is... It's kind of like a, at Cal, it wasn't a production major. It's kind of like a literature major, but instead of literature, you're studying film. Hmm. So a lot of reading and writing and watching movies. It was the type of thing where I got into the end of my uh, second year uh, school. And I'm like, I haven't picked a major yet. I better pick something I can finish in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, actually, it was, a, it was a great major for me. Um, and I did take music classes uh, while I was there, took the theory series and... Uh, some other things as well. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, ah, oh, I should have just gone for the music major. But I don't know if I would have been down for the entirely academic approach either. Mm. So they were suspicious that you didn't go to recording school. Why? Because everybody was coming out of recording school? I guess so. I don't know. I mean, uh, I I consider it just kind of a stroke of luck because honestly, if I think it ended up in any other places... Uh, I would have, you know, interned and then struggled to look for opportunities. And then it just so happened that where I ended up, there was an opportunity waiting for me. So at the end of your internship at Prairie Sun, did Muka just say, hey, you want to stay on? Um, Yeah, you know, actually, Muka really wanted me to take a job in the office um, because I'd made myself pretty invaluable. Um, And I I think, you know, that was the big thing is, you know, uh, when I went in for my internship, I made sure that I was in everything. And I tried to make it so by the end of it that they couldn't imagine not having me there. Break that down (laughs) for me a bit. Like, what did you do specifically? Uh, I just tried to be on top of aware of everything that was going on. So I knew what was on the schedule. I knew what was upcoming. I was talking to the engineers and advanced the, advancing their sessions with them, um, which was advice I got from people while I was there. But it, I think I was an advice I've handed to interns since then. But I'm one of the few people who actually did it. And so, uh, yeah, so just tried to make myself a part of all of it was helping out with marketing and sending out email newsletters and just uh whatever needed to be done and just would you if you found yourself with idle time would you just present yourself to somebody and say can i help you with anything is there anything that needs to be done 
If I didn't, if I had idle time, I mean, I don't remember having idle time, quite honestly. I remember keeping my yellow pad and always having a list of the next 10 things that could be done. A lot of that was sometimes just things I was noticing on my own, like, oh, you know, this cable crossover needs to be rebuilt or, you know, this part of this studio, the wiring is a a mess and no one knows where anything leads anymore. I'm going to go, if I have, you know, a few free hours and no one's in the studio, I'm going to go rewire all that and clean it up. Um, or, oh, there's a bunch of stuff that's been changed around in the patch bay and no one's relabeled it. I mean, just silly things that, you know, when everybody else is in their day to day and it's the same for me now as an engineer, I, I can't, I don't have time or energy to pay attention to any of that. So I tried to pay attention to the stuff that everybody was missing because they were doing the work and I had the free brain power and energy to go deal with that. So obviously the the studio was conducive to that because in some studios, I think if you were to take that initiative and try to like go and involve yourself and say like patch bay relabeling, I can imagine a scenario where somebody would walk in and go, what are you doing? Oh, I'm relabeling the patch bay. Oh, well, we were going to do that and we're going to do it this particular way. But obviously there, it's it wasn't like that. Sure. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, I think you know, it, it, obviously I was telling people what I was going to do, but uh, there definitely were a lot of things where uh, uh, no one else had the time or energy to do it. I'm like, hey, do you want me to go do this? Do you want me to go do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if I went and cleaned this up? What if I went and uh, uh, took care of this thing? And so very rarely was the answer no. Did you have a sense of like, I'm going to like own these tasks or I'm going to make this place my home and because some, you know, some interns don't take that initiative. They sit around and wait to be told what to do. I, it might have just been a coincidence. The first week I was there, I remember this situation where Muka had an overdub session. He, like I said, he was engineering, producing more at the time. He came down to the office and he was like, "Why are there no guitar amps or microphones set up?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know. We were supposed to do that." He's like, "Well, I'm working in there. You should have that stuff ready." I'm like, "Okay." So from wow. then on, from then on, it was just like. I'm going to be ready with those type of things. So, you know, uh, just simple things like, uh, you know, uh, as an intern, I remember assisting on this one uh, record that uh, my mentor, Oz Fritz, was doing. He, uh, you know, if he had a overdub session with the vocalist, I knew what mic he was using. I knew where the client's hard drives were. I knew how he liked the console setup. I'd go in before the session. I'd set up the microphone. I'd set up his recording chain. I'd label the desk, uh, you know, get the cue mix ready so they could just come in and go. I, uh, I've honestly never experienced that as an engineer. <laughs> It'd be yeah, awesome. Um, I want to stop you for a sec. Yeah. Your mentor, Oz Fritz. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oz Fritz is, uh, has done some uh, pretty amazing records. Uh, he definitely does done. I think he did Bone Machine for uh, Tom Waits. Is that right? Um, Mule Variations. Mule Variations. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I think your your guy Chad Blake worked on uh, at least the I'm, mix for Bone Machine. Okay. Um, though that was before his In the Box days. Um, yeah, Oz has done a lot of amazing stuff. He had a, you know, career in New York before he came out California way and then, uh, has done a lot of amazing stuff here too. What have you learned from him? Uh, you know, I, have never had as much assistant time under Oz as I would have liked. And the other interesting thing about Oz is he's not someone who narrates what he does. You know, some mm. engineers, when they're mixing, they're like, 
oh, I'm going to try. And they're talking to the room. It doesn't matter if they're talking to the client, the assistant, whoever it is, themselves. <laughs> Ghosts. They narrate, they narrate what they're going to do. Oh, you know, I think I'm going to try this on this now. And I think I'm going to try this EQ on that. And, you know, maybe I'll do, oh, you know, they're excited about what they're doing. And so they narrate what they're doing. And Oz is silent when he mixes. It's just, he's in his space and he does his thing. And uh he he has his process so uh it's what i've learned from his business has been by osmosis it's been you know it's some of it is just like basic you know little oh that's how oz mics this oh i noticed that he's miking it differently this time i, w- I wonder why oh this time he's going back that oh, oh now he's trying this other miking approach um and then you know watching a mix a very similar uh, thing you know the interesting thing about watching Oz mix, which still kind of blows me away, is he's he's a uh, he's just one of those guys who mixes all in solo. Um, which you know I, before I'd gotten there, I'd read that thing you never mix in solo. But Oz will bring solo up the kick drum. He'll actually just bring up the kick drum fader. All the other faders are down, and he'll work on that. And then I'll set the level, and then I'll bring up the snare fader and solo that, and work on that, and then set the level relative to the kick drum, and so on and so on down the whole thing. And it's amazing. Every now and then he'll go back and change something that he started at the beginning, but most of the time not. And it just blows me away every time that somehow what comes out at the end is a mix. Yeah, you know, uh, there's so many little valuable things. I mean, one of my favorite things that I learned from Oz, and this this was an important one regarding mixing is, uh, you know, some of the other mixers I had assisted under, we talked a lot about separation. Mm-hmm. You know, that what we're going for is separation. I need more separation, need more separation. And it's, so it's, at a certain point, I think I began to think that that was kind of the end point you were aiming for. The end point was a mix where everything was separated and you could hear everything. And if you could hear everything, well, that was a good mix. And then I remember Oz telling me at a certain point, or maybe he was talking to the client, um, and I was uh, part of the conversation, but he was saying that uh, he has a point, you know, usually with every mix where he starts to worry that it's not going to come together, that it's just all too separate, and it's not going to come together into this cohesive whole. Um, and of course, then it gets past it, and it does. And But that, just, but that statement just blew me away, because I was like, wait, wasn't that the point, was to make it separate? <laughs> And so that really, that just that one comment struck off a whole new thought process for me about mixing and the realization that that separation was not the end point. That was kind of the minimum required of a great mix, that you can oh. hear things, that you get some separation so it's not just mush. But then there's a whole other level to take it to, which is to make it unify and work together and all move together to bring you the song right um so yeah it's hard to quantify exactly uh what i've learned from oz but uh a lot of things like that and some of it also too is just the uh just the craft side of uh i mean besides the craft side but it's kind of like the uh, the trade side of it just how to be on a session Mm because oz is like i'd say like one end of a spectrum of engineers and how you interact with musicians um, and I always find myself trying to figure out where I lie on the spectrum or do I, am I, am I just different on different sessions depending on what I feel like the musician is calling for? Cause Oz is not the type to involve himself in the music very much. Like he's an engineer's engineer. Like he really is an engineer. Like he, uh, 
you know, if you ask him if he likes one take or the other better, he'll tell you. And, you know, do you think that was good? Yeah, or maybe one more time. But that's about the extent of it. He's not someone to be like, here, try that other guitar. Or like, oh, what if you try that part up an octave? Or what if you added another harmony here? I'd, uh, I've never really noticed that from him where for me, it's hard not to get into that. Like, it's it's hard to take the the, the his pure engineering approach because i i when i feel like something in the music grabbed me and it's like oh i i know how to make this better <laughs> and i want to make it better sounds like oz has more of a, an albini approach yeah i don't I, that spectrum of kind of not getting too it's like the star trek approach where you don't get involved in the culture yeah. you don't try to disrupt the culture you you try to observe yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for him because this is all just based on an observation. But yeah, he's definitely. Whenever I find myself having a hard time, uh, feeling like I, I, I want to get involved in this the music and I can't and I can't fix what I feel like is wrong with it. I'm like, okay, how will Oz handle this situation? Because it seems like whatever's going on with the music, he just kind of lets it happen. He's focused on his role in the process and doesn't uh, allow the stress of what everybody else is dealing with to impact him. Um, and, you know, on the other end, extreme end of the spectrum, I remember uh, assisting uh, uh, Scott Solter one time in Prairie Sound. I know Scott. Scott's amazing. Uh, Scott's I worked, pretty damn amazing. I worked with him for nine days, and he kind of just ruined everything for me. He, he changed the way I think. <laughs> he, he, he really did. He changed the way I think ab- about a lot of things. He'll do that. Yeah, yeah. And he's amazing. But I love what he said, which is, you know, we were talking about a lot of different stuff. And uh, one of the things I talked about is, you know, what kids should do now. They're starting out um, in audio schools and all these types of issues. And he's like, he's like, you know, if I were advising a kid what to do if they're starting out, I'd say get an inbox and start bossing musicians around. And that's Scott's approach to engineering, which is like, there is no separation. You're in the middle of it and get in there and mess with it oh yeah very much so he was he was kind of an early mentor to me and and very uh in fact um one or two episodes ago i was talking to my friend brad brooks about scott because we both know scott and i had played some drums on one of scott's records and uh had worked out of a studio that scott and his uh studio partner uh, desmond shea had run called division hi-fi and he was a an early person who who had encouraged me to quit my job and go record. And yeah, he's a very fascinating individual. I really have great respect for him. I haven't talked to him in many years, and I hope to soon, uh, now that I'm talking about him more and more in, le- in these latest conversations. But yeah, man, he's a he's a, a deep he's a deep thinker. Yeah. And it wasn't a serious ears guy too. That was the thing that just got me, which is just um, as much as he is intellectual about it, he's also just totally tuned into what he's hearing. In all of my discussions with people over this, the life of this podcast, there's just so many different approaches to recording and, and people get involved at different levels. They get, uh, emotionally involved at, uh, they, their, their emotional involvement differs so greatly. Their views vary so greatly with, you know, obviously but um and you know what what like you know me listening to the stuff that you have on your website i listen to that i'm just like wow that just sounds amazing what 
what goes through his head. And then I'll listen to, you know, something from Andrew Sheps or Vance Powell and I'll go, wow, that sounds amazing. What's going through their head? And obviously <laughs> it's vastly different yeah. amongst everybody. So, but I don't know what, what does go through your head? Like what's your, you know, we're talking about Scott, we're talking about Oz. What, what about you? Uh, in terms of relationship to the music? Yeah. I mean, what do you, do you feel like you're a deep thinker about it or are you, how would you compare yourself in those two, those, those two polar opposites, Oz and Oz and Scott? That's interesting. You know, and sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit of a chameleon in that way, or that I'm still finding my identity within mm -hmm. the art. Um, and I don't know if that's a bad thing either. I, I think one of the pieces of advice I try to give to, uh, you know, young guys and interns and such is to not get too stuck on a methodology too quick. Um, I just think every time I find myself getting stuck with a method, like this is how I mix, then I just start cranking out bad mixes. Um, you know, even though guys, like I mentioned Oz, he has his method and it works. Um, but I also know that he changes stuff up just to change it sometimes. And I think that's healthy. And I think particularly when you haven't been doing it as long as he has, you've got to change it up more and more often. Because you get stuck in a method like, this is what I normally do on drums. This is what I normally do for bass. You stop listening. You're not actually listening to what's happening. You're just following your prescription. Um, and I know for me, I find that dangerous and usually results in kind of a creative lull. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I find myself getting out of that, then I find myself, that's when I grow. And that's when I, I start doing those things that the stuff I put on my website. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> that's, Good when choices. I start, that's when I start doing that type of stuff when I'm, I'm, yeah. So, you know, as to where I fit, it's, it's interesting because I do, I do feel like I've embraced the chameleon side of this for more than one reason. Um, one is that I just enjoy different approaches to it. Like I really enjoy the sessions where I am, producing and like i'm i go in with artists and i help pick songs and uh arrange songs and hire the players and you know i'm just uh totally involved every step of the way and you know suggesting overdubs ideas and you know coming up with parts and doing all that stuff i love that i love being involved with the music that way other times i love the sessions where uh it's like a group playing live and i'm just the engineer and Nothing feels more to me just like pure engineering is when everybody's in the same room playing together and I got to figure out a way to document that. Mm -hmm. Like everything else, like doing the overdub heavy stuff, it feel, that feels less like engineering to me as so much as like it's assembling. But like to me, like when I think of like what do recording engineers do, I think of like those times where it's like, oh, here's like five or six pieces in the same room and I got to figure out where am I going to put them? Where am I going to put the microphones so I can document this? Um, yeah. So I enjoy I enjoy both ends of that spectrum. So it, it it would be really hard for me to say like, oh, I'm the type of person who's always involved, or I'm the type of person who just sits back and lets it happen. I know I could never go the latter way. I could never just always purely just sit back and let it happen. There's too often that I get excited about what's happening. Hope you're enjoying our interview here with Mr. Matt Wright on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to take a sponsor break? with Audio Technica for a minute. And I want to tell you about a new microphone they have out. It's called the AE2300. Uh, as per many microphones in the Audio Technica line, it excels in high SPL applications. Uh, it's got a proprietary double dome diaphragm construction that improves high frequency and transient response, maintains directionality across the entire frequency range, and it 
Also, it has minimal off-axis coloration, meaning the frequency response is nearly identical at 0, 90, and 180 degrees, which helps maintain phase cohesion in multiple microphone setups. Uh, it's got a switchable low-pass filter. Most mics have a high-pass filter. This has a low-pass filter, which helps it remove harsh, high-frequency hiss without negatively affecting the overall tone of an instrument. And it's got a low-profile design, which allows the microphone to be placed easily and unobtrusively in a wide variety of setups. It's got a rugged brass metal construction, which ensures dependable performance in live music applications. I think that's a code for if drummers hit it. It also includes the AT8471 isolation stand clamp, and, of course, a soft protective pouch. So that's the AE2300. Uh, MSRP on that is 419 And quick glance on the Internet, it looks like the average price that you can pick it up for is actually 269 at your uh, favorite pro audio stores. So there it is, the AE2300 from Audio-Technica. Let's get back to our interview here with Matt Wright here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. For me, working with bands in the studio... It's almost like going to a new city each time and exploring. And uh, a band to me is like a city. It's like, let me go explore this culture. What are these people like? But I do it like, you know, in the confines of a studio with, and the city, of course, in this case is the group of people and, and what they, the little ecosystem that they create within themselves. Getting involved in that is always fun for me. Yeah. You know, and recording sessions are intimate. Yeah, all they the, are. All this time spent in the room with people, even if you're just doing a few days. I mean, just like, uh, you know, you mentioned that Jacob first session. It's just six days from beginning to end um, to make that record. and But by the end of it, it's like, there's this strange intimacy. So it feels like we're old friends, but we're not. I don't know anything about these people aside from what's been revealed in the last six days. And they don't know anything about me aside from that. But it's just, you cannot put on a... Uh, and I don't even try. You cannot put on your like uh, the professional version of yourself for ten hours a day, six days in a row. You're just yourself. I don't know if this kind of highlights it for me. When I meet somebody in the studio for the first time, there's handshakes by the end of the session, and we're saying goodbye. We're hugging each other. Totally, totally, yeah. And it, it's it's strange too because uh, there are times where I meet the people I've worked with outside of the studio. And the disconnect of the space, being in different space and seeing them somewhere else, you know, will kind of like flip that switch and make you realize, oh, like, I really don't know these people outside the recording studio. Despite this connection, this in intimacy, I feel it's very, uh, it is very odd meeting them in another space, like going to see a show or something like, oh, we, like we had this thing. But aside from that, you're a very unknown person to me. Yeah. yeah, it's it is strange. It's um, it's like going to camp with somebody and then <laughs> seeing them on the in the outside world, you know, and you have that shared experience. Yeah, but it's like no, you're my camp friend. I I need to compartmentalize <laughs> you into that part of my life. You're my band camp friend. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mixing when you mix, I noticed on your website, uh, it seems to come up in a couple spots about unattended mixing. Is that because that's your preference uh, or just because it's convenient? I think I'm highlighting unattended mixing when it comes to the uh, home studio stuff because I really don't want anybody coming into my home studio. <laughs> yeah, um, Mixing, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, most of the mixing I've done has been in Studio A at Prairie Sun with the client there the whole time. 
um, like if I were to weigh the scales, like percentage wise, unattended versus unattended, how much have I done? That's most of what I've done. There are pluses and minuses to it. And it, a lot of it has to do with the person and their comfort level with the record making process and with the mixing process. I think I also was highlighting the unattended factor because I think that's a selling point for that, some people. I had an, an interesting experience with one band where I tracked the record and they were supposed to mix for two days. We booked the studio and we we did and uh, they hated it because their previous records, they had sent the files off to someone else and they mixed it and sent it to them and they sent notes back. They didn't like being in the studio the whole time while we were mixing. They found it kind of overwhelming. Hmm. So I, I highlight that, if anything, to give people permission and to say, like, look, if you don't feel a connection to this part of the process or if you don't feel like you have something to offer or if you feel like listening to the same song for, you know, five to eight hours uh, or whatever we're going to spend per song is going to hurt your ability to make a final judgment call on whether or not that's the mix. Don't feel like you have to be there. It's okay. You can, mm-hmm. if that isn't your thing, you can decide not to be there. Um, at the same time, uh, there have been times where having the artists in the room and mixing it together, they've pushed me to do more than I thought I could do. There's definitely pros and cons to the whole thing. And it, I, I guess it depends on your personality and your working style. And when you do have somebody like over your shoulder, or looking, you know, behind you, you know, some are scared and some are adventurous. Mm-hmm. I totally. guess for me, I've always tried to avoid the ones that are scared because I don't want to hear the, oh, what are you doing now? <laughs> kind of comments. You know, only times it really doesn't work is when I'm uh, EQing a kick drum. They're like, no, yes, yes, no. And it's like, <laughs> hold on. Don't, you don't need to comment on this part. I know that's too much mid range. I know that's not enough. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> Don't worry. If you're, we're gonna we're gonna wear ourselves out if we uh, try to agree upon every little EQ move in the moment, step by step. Have you ever had somebody go, "Okay, all right, let's mix. All right, so bring up the kick drum and try to like talk <laughs> you through it." Um. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's so. Yes. It's so crazy. You're like, wait a second. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, so much of the job these days, particularly considering most of our, uh, I mean, I I don't know what it's like uh, for your end, but most of my clientele is amateurs, which is not to say that they're not uh, necessarily even doing it full time, but I work with so many people who are doing their first record, or this is their first record in a big studio environment you know, not doing it in a home studio with someone. Um, And so, so much about it is education. And so I spent a lot of time educating on the front end about how the mixing can work. Like, look, you can be there the whole time. I'm I'm never going to tell anybody if they're paying hourly for the studio, you can't be there. I mean, it's it's your thing. You can be there. Uh, And, you know, when someone is feeling like they need to do it that way, I try to explain to them, like, look, we can do that and I can just be the technician who do what does what you say to do. But I just want you to know I have this other skill set to offer you, which is that I can actually mix. You can tell me what you want to hear and then I can actually mix and try to get it to that point, maybe in a way that you don't know to do, uh, maybe in a way that's better than you would do if you just told me every step of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know again if it's if you know when it's the hourly thing you know we can spend those hours however we however you want to <laughs> i i hate working hourly 
<laughs> I really do. I like, I like, it's like, you want me to work today? Here's my day rate. You want me to mix? Here's the rate I'm going to charge mm-hmm. you to mix this song to, to a point that everybody's happy. Yeah. Cause I hate like looking at the clock going, oh man, I better hurry up. They're going to flip out because I've just crossed the eight hour mark or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, a lot of that is just the reality of being a staff engineer working in a, someone else's studio. Hourly is how everything happens. Um, but I, would you agree that the benefit of that is that it, it teaches you to work and focus on what's important and work quickly? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the, uh, the honest truth of this is rarely am I the one uh, making the mix take longer. <laughs> and I tell people this on the front end, like, look, if you tell me you have three days to mix uh, nine songs or 10 songs or whatever it is, or four days to mix 12 songs, which is fast, you know, yeah, I will get it done in that time if you let me. <laughs> if, yeah. Um, because there's a certain minimum amount of time I'm going to have to spend in every mix, and then we're going to have the time where together we fine-tune it to your desires. So it's really... Are you going to be able to ab- abandon each song that quickly? Yeah. So uh, we're just about out of time, but a, a couple parting questions or thoughts. Mm. So you're, you're fortunate to work out of this great facility that's well equipped. Uh, do you find yourself wanting to spend your own money on equipment? How's your what's your gear lust level like? Oh, I I have no gear lust. Good for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's tough because. Uh, to a certain degree, I'm more excited about the music than I am into the technology. Uh, I always have been. Um, now, the technology can really make a difference, unfortunately. I did a comparison recently where I've been doing some mixing in the box with outboard inserts at Prairie Sun for certain clients, whereas other mixes I'm doing on the desk. And uh, I thought it sounded pretty good. And then uh, Muka was pushing me. He's like, Bubba, you got to try summing on the desk while you're doing that and see if it sounds different. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure it doesn't sound that different. I I tried it, and it's way different. Yeah, I think I don't know. I don't want to get into a uh, in the box, out of the box kind of you know debate or or discussion because that can lead into a big rabbit hole, which people are going to roll their eyes as they're listening and go, oh my god, yeah. not this discussion. But I will say that I think it's you start to get yourself into a world that. Like it's, it's, you can't just mix in the, I think do a mix in the box and then bust it out to summing. Um, I think you have to like mix into whatever you're, you're, you're doing at the time. Like if you're mixing at a console, you, you, you're responding to how the console is responding. Oh, totally. Particularly mixing on the SSL. I feel like it's like you, you push it and it's like better, 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 better. Ah, too much over the edge. There's like this sweet spot where you get the console humming and it's like, oh, this is it. This is it. Um, it mixing in the box is totally you just you pull the mix up, you pull the mix down, no difference. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because I do notice the differences at the same time. I think part of this is also just a, from a practical business sense. You know, when I think about uh, the mixing I do uh out of my home studio or uh, the unattended, you know, digital mixing I do. Uh, you know, people are doing that with me because I can do it for cheaper. And if I start buying a bunch of gear, I'm not going to be able to do it for cheaper. 
Um, and no one's going to want to pay me that much more because I buy a couple compressors or because I buy a summing mixer. And for me, it's a very practical decision, which is that um, I'm doing this so that I can still make my rate, but provide people with a cheaper option than trying to mix in a pro studio. Uh, I'm still giving them, you know, I'm still very proud of the mixes I do uh, on my Pro Tools rig. And uh, for a lot of people who are, you know, hiring me to do it at that rate, it's, you know, their other option is doing it themselves or doing it in a home studio with someone who, so I, I'm providing, uh, I'm providing something they can't get otherwise. And I just don't see complicating that by buying a lunch, a lot of, a lot of gear. Yeah. I, I, I made the decision a while ago to just dig into the in the box mixing thing. I I abandoned ship on Pro Tools after 18 years for mixing, and I mix in uh, Studio One from Personas, and I do not regret doing that at all at this point, um, mm-hmm. be, because of just the workflow. It just works for me. But that's interesting what you said. Nobody's really going to care if I buy a certain piece of gear they just want to get they want the they want their thing mixed how yeah. you do it they don't yeah. it's like they want to be excited when they hear their mixes um right. that's the thing and uh you know yes the tools i have available are going to help me get there more easily or not um but uh it's it, the reality is too this is my business this is how i this is how i feed my family and pay our rent and everything else so um, it, it needs to, uh, it needs to provide and not just be a way for me to buy toys that make me excited. <laughs> wow. If that's not the best parting thought in a long time, I don't know what is. That's great, Matt. Very, very well spoken about that. I like that. Yeah. Well, um, well, we're done. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just want to thank you for being on the show. I think, uh, this is a, this is a good one. It's chock full of a lot of really, uh, good perspective, interesting perspective that I think people will enjoy. Yeah. Hope so. Yeah. Thanks so, for having me on. Yeah. This has been great. I enjoy it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoyed chatting with you. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll meet in person. Stranger things happen. I know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Matt, take care. Thank you. There you have it. Matt Wright on the working class audio podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly got some, tidbits out of that conversation that I'm going to uh, employ in my thinking. So there it is. We're out of time. And of course, thank you, Cliff Truesdell. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Chuck Smith. And thank you, Cole Williams, for all of your help. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And of course, I want to thank you all. I certainly appreciate the time you take to listen to me ramble. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.